The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, welcome on our continuing study of end-time things, eschatology, very dramatic setting here with the electrical storm going on, so kind of sober, green sky, sound of wind and rain in the background. Let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the time we have to be together tonight to study your word. We're grateful for the power and the clarity uh, that comes from your word and the mysteries, too, things that we would have no way of knowing if you didn't tell us. And I pray that you would unfold these truths to us, O Lord, help us to understand what the Bible teaches. Father, it's not always evident to us how we should apply the teaching that we learn. Uh, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to be holy. We want to be faithful in witnessing. Uh, Lord, we want to be good uh, husbands and wives and parents, children, employees, employers. Lord, we want to be faithful in these roles. Uh, We don't know how studying the Antichrist or the future tribulation helps us in these things, O Lord, but we know that you have put it in your word and you do want us to know it. And uh, Father, I know that we are to look uh, forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We're to be forewarned about the terrors that are coming on the earth. We are to plead with people to flee from the wrath to come. And I pray that you would, uh, Lord, fill us with these truths while we study tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking uh, at the period of the tribulation. Uh, uh, We were in the middle of describing that last time. And tonight I want to divide our attention uh, on four major topics that have to do with that seven-year period. We're going to continue our study on the Antichrist and his uh, uh, future, what's coming with the Antichrist. We're going to talk about the temple which is connected with one of the verses uh, with the Antichrist. We're going to talk about the Jews and their future and the plagues that are coming on the earth in the book of Revelation, the destruction of the earth uh, as revealed in that book, the final book of the Bible. Um, By my count, those are four topics, 15 minutes each. I don't know how I would ever do that. I had a number of people come up and say, please, slow down, you know, etc. But I said, I I feel like I have to get... Uh, to the second coming of Christ, at least in this study, uh, don't you think? I would, ho- I would hope we could get to the new heaven and the new earth. So we just have to keep going. There's just a lot of important topics to discuss. So let's begin with uh, our continuing look at uh, the tribulation. Uh, we talked last time about the period of the great tribulation, that expression found in one of the translations in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus said there will be a time of great tribulation coming, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until then and never will be again. And so uh, that's where that expression comes from, though we are in a time of tribulation or testing, difficulty now. uh, It's not the great tribulation. The uh, time frame for that, given to be seven years, really found only in one place in the Bible, and that only by interpretation as we understand the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, 69 plus 1, that one final week referred to. In, uh, at the end of Daniel 9, Daniel 9:27, he'll confirm a covenant of men, with many for one seven or one week, etc. And there's that seven uh, years, that final seven-year period. But we also noted that there is this repetition of this three and a half-year time frame. Uh, 42 months, 1260 days, um, that kind of thing, uh, that three and a half 
years. And uh, as you look at it, if you add it together, depending on how you look at the first three and a half, the second three and a half years, it adds up to seven years. So there's more than one place that alludes to this time frame, and I think it's a faithful way of understanding it. So now we come to the idea of the Antichrist. And uh, the fact that a final Antichrist is coming, I appreciate the comments that Steve Young made to me at the end and remind me in, the book, in Greek that the, uh, that the prefix anti doesn't mean an, uh, opposing, but in the place of, in the place of. So Antichrist is one who takes the place of Christ, who stands in his place or seeks to substitute himself for Christ. However, we know that you can't do that without being against Christ, so we can understand it really both ways. The two of them really go together. But there's the Antichrist, and it says in 1 John 2.18, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and many Antichrists have come. So there's one final, and then there are some prototypes, types of Antichrist that have been. We saw that there were two types of this. There's the governmental kind, and then there's the doctrinal kind. The governmental kind uses his power to oppose the work of Christ. Psalm 2 speaks of this kind of thing, um, uh, where he, uh, the kings of the earth, it says, take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. So they fight against Christ, etc. And so there have been many of those antichrists and will be. And then there's the doctrinal antichrist, uh, someone who is teaching against the doctrine of Jesus Christ, uh, against the fact that he's come in the flesh, etc. Those two things will really come together, I think, in the final antichrist. There is a governmental or power aspect of the antichrist, and there's a religious or spiritual aspect as well. And all of that comes together in that final antichrist. Now, Paul was teaching these things in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. So it implies that he taught them, and not just that he taught them once, but taught them repeatedly. So it wouldn't be appropriate for us to say, you know, why are we gathering to study these uh, doctrinal minutiae? It's not important, etc. It really wouldn't be fit for us to, to say that or speak uh, this way, because the Apostle Paul gives us an example here of thorough teaching. He said, I was teaching you about the Antichrist. Remember that. Remember how I used to teach you these things. And so he refers to that. He picks up on the warning that Christ gives. It says in Matthew 24, 24 and 25, false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So there's a very sober warning for us uh, that we are to be forewarned about the Antichrist. We're to know what he is going to do. We are to understand it. And even if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we, are, we should be faithful to teach it to our children and to our disciples, people that we lead to Christ, uh, so that they understand what's coming, so that it is impossible to deceive even the elect. They can't be deceived. They will be very aware of what he's going to come and do. Now, there are many passages in the book of Daniel, I think, that allude to the Antichrist. These are lengthy passages that I don't have the time to read through here. But Daniel 7, the image or the vision that Daniel has, the night vision of four beasts, four great beasts coming up out of the uh, sea. And the fourth uh, beast was the most terrifying of them all. Uh, there's no animal that's like it. There's no name given to this animal. It's just a terrifying, ferocious beast. And there were ten horns on this beast, and the horns represent power or authority. Some would say uh, kings or phases of a kingdom, etc. And there was another horn that came up, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. So there's this career of this of this uh, powerful being in the fourth uh, beast. And uh, verse 21, I'm on page two of my outline here, Daniel 7:21. It says, "As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. This horn, it says in verse 20, looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully." 
That's going to be a major theme with the Antichrist. And so he's waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So then the angel gives this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns or ten kings will come from this kingdom and after them another king will rise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. Verse 25, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. So there's that three and a half year period there. Uh, the saints are handed over to the anti Christ, but the court will sit, its power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, greatness of the kingdoms and the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. Uh, his kingdom will be uh, an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. So that's Daniel 7, the end of the chapter. Uh, I think this is speaking of the uh, future uh, Antichrist. In Daniel 8, we have, I think, a past Antichrist. I think this is speaking of um, one that comes as a result of the generals that take over after Alexander the Great. However, uh, as we've talked about it, this, it's an, uh, a prototypical or prototype Antichrist. So there are elements of even this one who we could say would be Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll talk more about him in a moment. But um, uh, who then typifies the final Antichrist, this Daniel 8. The reason I say in Daniel 7 is definitely the future Antichrist is that fourth beast, I think, represents the final form of the, uh, the empire that conquers the entire world. And it goes right to the end of time. The saints are going to take over the world after this Antichrist uh, is defeated. So that's why I think that's the future Antichrist. This one, however, uh, comes from the shaggy goat in Daniel 8, who is clearly, definitely Alexander the Great. And uh, from him uh, come these four kings, and out of one of them comes this other king. And it says, in the latter part of their reign, Daniel 8, 23, um, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. All right, so again, this had, there's just elements of this man's career that are very much, I think, going to be seen again in the future Antichrist. I'm going to summarize what those elements are at the end, but I'm just giving you the biblical background. This is the data. This is where we come from. I'm going to give you a list of summary statements, but I want you to know behind those summary statements are all these passages of Scripture. So we see some of those. We see Daniel 9.27 also, I think, refers to the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many. For one seven, in the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple... He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And then in Daniel 11, again, we get another glimpse into this Antichrist. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Do you notice that again? There's this issue of intrigue. It's trickery. It's deceit. He comes to power but doesn't appear to be what he really is. He's deceptive. Uh, so we get this aspect again and again. Somebody who takes power through intrigue and deception. 
Again, I believe the immediate context of Daniel 11 is, is one of those Greek kings that took over in the time before Christ. But again, I think as it was, so it will be. I think that's just a very, very important pattern in of teaching on eschatology. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, God allows things to happen or orchestrates things that happen in history that give us a glimpse of what will happen at the end. And so I think that's what's going on here. Uh, so here's this Greek king um, who rises up in this way, but he's going to end up being a picture of the final Antichrist. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully and with only a few people will rise to power. So he has tremendous power, uh, but he gets it deceitfully. He doesn't do it because he uh, has treme- a tremendous army, uh, but just because of, it seems, almost supernatural forces that bring this guy and put him into power. Now, Daniel 11 is the immediate fulfillment, as Antiochus Epiphanes, most uh, commentators say. Uh, he was the fourth of the Antiochus name. Epiphanes is a nickname. It means the manifest or the illustrious, born in the, in the year 215, around 215 uh, B.C., died 164 B.C. He ruled the Seleucid Empire from 175 until he died in 164 B.C. He was in charge of Jerusalem and Palestine, that whole area. And according to um, uh, histories, uh, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig and pouring it out a pig's blood uh, in the Holy of Holies. And uh, this uh, is a picture of the abomination of desolation. Um, the desecration of the temple, but that's what Antiochus does. But he died, and uh, he's clearly not the final Antichrist. Christ himself hadn't even come yet. But his career and his arrogance and his demeanor, how he came to power, lots of elements of his career, I think, are pictures or, or, or just aspects of the final Antichrist. Uh, at the end of Daniel 11, the language uh, tends to rise up, it seems, and uh, encapsulate more of that final Antichrist career, although we could still be talking about Antiochus. Listen to what it says. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor God of fortresses, a God unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. Uh, He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will gain, sorry, extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So again, primarily, I think, one of those Greek kings, Antiochus, I think, at the end, but a picture of the future Antichrist because what immediately follows this is Daniel 12. And this is what it says. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. What does that sound like? That sounds exactly like Jesus' teaching on the Great Tribulation. I believe Jesus was actually quoting Daniel 12 there. Um, But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, 
will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, that sounds to me like the general resurrection. And so right after this language about this ruler and all of the things that he does, we have this language of um, the judgment and the resurrection. So I think that gives you uh, some background from the book of Daniel on the Antichrist. But there's uh, New Testament evidence as well. One of the key com- comparisons you're going to get, Second Thessalonians 2, 4, and Daniel 11, 36, and 37. Look at them side by side. Let me read Daniel 11, 36, and 37, and then compare it to Second Thessalonians 2, 4. Daniel 11 again, the king will do as he pleases, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Clearly a connection between the two. I think the first is the prototype or what you could call the anti-type, and then the, the final is the antichrist. So this is exactly what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. Look at the, look at the whole passage, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 2, sorry, 1 through 12. It says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeits, uh, miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So that's an extended teaching on the Antichrist and the second coming of Christ. So in other words, Paul says the the idea that you have missed the day of the Lord is impossible because that day cannot come until the rebellion uh, occurs. That's the general turning away, the apostasy, etc. And then you get uh, this man of lawlessness. The term Antichrist doesn't appear here. Uh, it's, a, it's an interpretation to say that this is the same thing that John's referring to in 1 John 2.18, but I think it is. This is that, that Antichrist who is coming, the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. Notice, as we've already noted, his arrogance and his blasphemy, how he basically takes God on. I mean, face to face, defies him and blasphemes him and just takes him on. And he's allowed to prosper and succeed for a period of time, a set time. And he does well in everything that he does. Um, Notice um, that it says, uh, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. So we're going to see when we get to Revelation 13 that there's a very strong connection between the Antichrist and the work of Satan. Satan basically invests his supernatural power fully in this individual, this man. And so he's there with the power of Satan behind him. And he's able to do miraculous signs and wonders. He's doing supernatural things. 
Now notice Satan has always had the power to do supernatural things. He is a supernatural being. Why doesn't he do them now? Do you ever wonder about that? Think about uh, the contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Did Satan have the power to ignite the sacrifice and the offering to Baal? Did he have the ability to do that? Well, no doubt about it. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation and he does those kinds of things. Well, then why didn't he do it then? Would have been a great moment for it. Well, quite simply, he's not in charge. Satan's not in charge. And so God would not permit him to do that. He was in a straitjacket, as it were. He was restrained, not able to do what would have been incredibly persuasive to the Jews at the time, that Baal was God. But Baal isn't God, he doesn't exist, and God was being gracious to the people and restrained Satan so that Satan could not ignite that sacrifice. You understand what I mean? Uh, But then, with a simple prayer by Elijah, the fire comes down from God and everybody knows that Yahweh is the true God. He's the only God, etc. Well, God isn't going to be so kind at the end. He's actually going to be giving people over to a delusion so that they will believe a lie. That's what it says right here. He's going to allow the Antichrist to do supernatural things. See, I have told you ahead of time, okay? (laughs) He will do miracles. Now, God covered this in, in, in Deuteronomy. He said, if a prophet appears in your midst and even does signs and wonders, but leads you to worship a God you have not known, he's a false prophet. Stone him to death. Don't be afraid of him. Etc. So even the signs and wonders are not enough. You see then the incredible test he gave through Jesus, right? Jesus does signs and wonders, and he proclaims that he is God's son in the flesh. <laughs> and they stoned him as a blasphemer based on Deuteronomy, see? But you have to discern with right judgment. Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. But the fact of the matter is, miracles are not enough. This, this uh, Antichrist will be able to do great signs and wonders, and uh, it, will, it will deceive, it says, those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love and believe the truth and so be saved. And so God gives them over to this delusion. All right, well, let's summarize what we've learned about the Antichrist then. Uh, based on Second Thessalonians, he comes during the time of rebellion, the general apostasy that we've already mentioned. He's called the man of lawlessness or man of sin uh, because he is completely characterized by rebellion against God. He hates God. He's opposed to him. He's a lawless man, wicked all right? He is doomed to destruction, says Paul. Uh, there's no escape for him. He will be destroyed. Verse 4 reveals his character. As we've already noted, he is arrogant. Uh, he exalts himself over every deity in the world. So he ends all world religions, basically. There's, there's nothing left but worshiping him. That's the, end of the, that's the end of the line. So basically, at that point, there will be two religions in the world. There will be worship of the true Christ true believers who will exist at that time through, through great suffering. And there will be the worship of the, of the beast. We'll, we'll call, call him that, Revelation 13. So he's going to get rid of all religions and he's going to proclaim himself to be God. Provocative fra- phrase, which we'll get to uh, later this evening, he will set himself up in God's temple, it says, proclaiming himself to be God. So we'll get to that more in a moment. Um, he is revealed when the restraining force that's holding him back is taken out of the way. This is a bit mysterious. Uh, don't really know what this is. It might it might refer to the um, uh, the work of God through Christians through the church in some way. Some people talk about this as as pointing toward the pre-tribulation rapture, or it may just have to do with the fact that God's timing is the reforming or the restraining force. In other words, nothing can happen until God says so. And so when that when that 
barrier is, is, is removed. And you're going to see this also as you study the book of Revelation, how there is this huge army that's waiting uh, until the time comes, and then, and then the barrier is removed and they come flooding in. So there's that sense of removal of a barrier that's really in the hand of in the mind of God. Um, but anyway, this difficult passage to interpret. Jesus himself is going to overthrow him, it says, with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Hallelujah. He's going to take a stand against the prince of princes, against the king of kings. He's going to take Jesus on, and he will lose. And it says in the book of Revelation, he will lose because Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is omnipotent God, so you can't fight that battle and win. But uh, Christ himself will come. So this is the second coming of Christ. So the Antichrist will be alive at the second coming of Christ, you understand. There's nothing after that at that phase of, of human history. So he will, he will stand there and fight Jesus, and he will lose. Uh, the Antichrist reign characterizes, I've mentioned, by astonishing miracles that deceive even the non-elect. Now, the probably the most famous passage on the Antichrist is Revelation 13. Again, the word uh, Antichrist doesn't appear there. This is the beast from the sea. Later in the chapter, we get the beast from the earth. The beast from the earth is not the Antichrist. He's called the false prophet by many. Um, but the beast from the sea is the Antichrist. This is what it says, Revelation 13, 1 through 8. And the dragon, that's Satan, by the way, stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave, his, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Uh, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Same period of time, three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He's going to win. And he, will, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So those are very clear, strong verses on this beast from the sea, um, the Antichrist. He is strongly linked at the beginning to the dragon, who in Revelation 12 was revealed, you know, multiple titles, dragon, ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan. So four, four names given in Revelation 12, that's who it is. So there is Satan, Revelation 13 begins with Satan standing, the dragon, standing by the sea. And up out of the sea comes this beast. It's kind of eerie, isn't it? And so he's summoning this beast from the sea. Some people say the sea, uh, a better translation is the abyss. So he's taking him up out of the, the abyss, which is where Satan is, is going to be locked up in, etc. But I think the sea is better. Talk more about that in a minute. But um, the dragon stands on the, on the seashore. And in verse 2 it says, he gives power and great authority to the beast. So he's giving his own supernatural power to the Antichrist. He's coming from the sea. And I believe the best interpretation is that the sea represents the churning um, nations of Gentiles. It just represents human history. It represents the nations. And so um, the, the beast, the Antichrist, is a human being, a Gentile. He comes up out of the nations and emerges as a leader of the nations. Um, the ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns, amazingly, 
um, show how linked the beast is to Satan himself. If you look at Revelation 12.3 right there on the page, it says, speaking of Satan, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Sound familiar? So, I mean, the Antichrist is satanic. He's just flat out satanic. He's not Satan, but he is a human being who is in some way uh, overwhelmed with the power and the presence. I might even say indwelt, as Judas was when he uh, betrayed Jesus, indwelt with Satan himself in some amazing way. And these uh, uh, heads and horns and crowns also represent power and authority, dominion over the nations of the earth. Uh, blasphemy is intrinsic to the Antichrist, hence all the blasphemous names on him, and he opens his mouth to utter blasphemy. He speaks against God. He's not afraid to say anything. He's just cast off all restraints. He has no fear of God at all. And he'll say anything and seemingly succeed for three and a half years. All right? The animalistic attributes uh, link him, I think, to the beast in Daniel 7, the leopard, the bear. There's no lion in Daniel 7, but the same kind of idea of beasts. And remember how in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a beast. And I think it's, it's just humanity at its worst is the, is the image here. It's bestial, uh, powerful, ripping and eating flesh like the bear in Daniel 7 and uh, conquering and trampling and all that kind of mindless destruction. That's the picture you get of the beast. He's an animal. Um, the fatal wound of verse 3, a bit of a mystery. One of his heads had suffered some kind of apparently fatal wound. Uh, many relate it to f- the false miracles and wonders that God permits the Antichrist to do to deceive the unbelievers of the world, perhaps even a resurrection, dead and alive again. Now, I want you to notice later in the chapter there is this uh, beast from the earth that comes and speaks on behalf of the beast from the sea and speaks much about it, thus he's get called this false prophet. Um, and some have likened, then, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth as an unholy trinity, a parody of God himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this wound that gets healed, a parody, then, of the resurrection of God the Son. And so you can see how Satan doesn't have any original thoughts. He's just taking and twisting and perverting anything that God does. He's not creative, he's destructive. God's the creator. And we'll see that beautifully in the new heaven, the new earth, God's creative power. We already see it in the present heaven and earth. Uh, but Satan is not creative, and so he's just imita- imitating and parodying it. So it could very well be that this man in some way is dead and then comes alive again. Uh, maybe God will give him that kind of power. Uh, that would be quite astonishing. Or it may be that it's just a part of that great deception. This man is a deceiver. He takes things over by intrigue, and it could be that it's just a trick, um, that the people think he's wounded fatally, but he really wasn't. In any case, uh, this is what the Scripture says. The whole world, it says, worships the beast. It's in awe and wonder over the beast. It's, it just can't get over the kind of power that he has, follows its authority. The worship uh, given the beast feeds its intrinsic blasphemy, arrogance, and pride taking God's place. The beast's aggressive character is curtailed by Almighty God 42 months, and that's it. Until the allotted time, it says in the book of Daniel, until the wrath that is, is decreed for him is poured out. I mean, everything's set. There's nothing this beast can do. 
It's limited by God because God is sovereign. He rules over this. The beast is given power over all the saints to kill them for this time in fulfillment of Daniel 7, 21 through 25, which you already read. Uh, Revelation 13, 10, it says, If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. You better believe it does. I mean, what do you think it would be like to live on the earth those last three and a half years? I mean, you're running, you're looking for a cave, you're trying to hide somewhere, you're in the desert. You're, I mean, you're just trying to survive. And like I told you about the mysterious 1290 days, I just think that, I just can imagine some band of believers just hanging on and counting down the days until it's over. Marking time. So the 1290 days, a mystery to those of us who don't need to know. <laughs> but uh, if we are that final generation, we'll know what it is and we'll start counting those days. And uh, Jesus said, unless those days have been shortened, no one will survive. So uh, he wants some of his elect, he wants some of his believers alive when he returns to the earth. And so they will survive, but many of them will be killed. Many. And uh, that's a, a terrifying thing when you think about it. So patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The power of the beast is worldwide, but limited to the non-elect, the non-believers, those whose names are not written, it says in the book of the lamb slain from the creation of the world. So you get a sense of the timeless eternity of God's plan. Nothing can change that. He's not going to be able to deceive the elect. That's not possible. None of them are going to lose their faith, but it's going to be a time of terrible testing. And, 2 Thessalonians 2, those who refuse to believe the truth, he's going to, God's going to give them over to a powerful delusion and a lie, so they'll believe the untruth. And they will uh, receive the mark of the beast. We'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, so he rules the earth. He has it all. Revelation 13, 11 through 18 is the beast from the earth, the so-called false prophet. Uh, he mostly speaks on behalf of the first beast, and causes men to worship it, verse uh, 12. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Uh, also able to do signs and wonders on behalf of the beast, deceiving the world, verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 13. It says, and he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven in full ver uh, view of men. That's the verse I was referring to. You see that? This satanic false prophet is able to cause fire to come down from, from uh, heaven to earth. I'm just saying, why didn't he do that back on, uh, on the mountain with Elijah? Would have been a great moment, don't you agree? I mean, if you're really trying to deceive people, that would have been a great moment for it to come. God wouldn't let it. Praise God for that. Meditate on that and praise God. He doesn't, he doesn't permit Satan to do whatever he wants. But at this phase of history, he will permit Satan far more latitude than ever before. These miracles and signs and wonders, a great example of that. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. They believed that he really was God, and they worshipped him. All right, he erects an idol for men to worship, and it talks about that, and then forces people to receive the very famous mark of the beast. How could I teach an eschatology without getting to 666, right? So here it is. You want to know my interpretation on 666. You're about to get it. I don't think you're going to be satisfied, but I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture and do the best I can. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on his forehead so that uh, no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now, the key thing for me in interpreting this um, is this idea of wisdom. It calls for wisdom. Well, this wisdom comes from God. 
And in Revelation, sorry, in Daniel chapter 12, it speaks of those who are wise will instruct many. So there's a kind of a wisdom that is given to those that are going through the trial. You understand what I'm saying? They, they are given a wisdom from God and they understand what to do. They know what to do. Read Daniel 12. Those who are wise, it says, will instruct many. And so they will get some kind of an insight from God about what's going on and they will give that instruction. Daniel was a wise man, but he didn't need to know. And so he asked more questions than he was cleared to know. And God told him to seal up the revelation until the time of the end, for it's for a distant generation. So what do you think I'm going to say the the number 666 means? What's my answer going to be? I don't know. There you go. I don't know. Um, If I die not knowing, then basically I didn't need to know. But let me tell you something. If you're alive during that time, will you need to know? What happens if you receive the mark of the beast? We'll look at the next scripture that I have quoted here. It says, if, by the way, the penalty of not receiving the mark is death by the beast. He will execute any who doesn't receive it. They're beheaded, it says in Revelation 20. So that's a grim thing, if you can think about that. Um, But the penalty of receiving the mark of the beast is eternity in hell. Revelation 14, which I quote frequently, but it really is zeroed in on this idea of receiving the mark of the beast. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So if you receive the mark of the beast, you'll go to hell. So therefore, it's good for you to know that, isn't it? Therefore, I do not believe it's possible for us to be tricked into it. Like we really don't know what's going on. Yes, Sean? There's a and in that sentence. Mm-hmm. Worship the beast and his image and receive the mark. Thank you. So in any case, you won't do that if you're one of the elects. No matter how to answer or other things there are, whatever they are, you won't do it. Because the people who are in here go to hell. Therefore, when the time comes, you will know not to do it. And you may say, I'm not ready to be a martyr. Well, the time hasn't come yet. And so it says in Matthew 10, do not worry ahead of time. But it doesn't say in Matthew 10, do not know ahead of time what's coming. So therefore, you need to study these things. You need to be aware of the fact that there will be... And I think the specificity here is really striking. Forehead, hand, number of the beast, the mark of his name. This is, how can this just be metaphorical or spiritual language? Yes, go ahead. I'm just trying to identify some markers that I could use if I was in this situation because the possibility of deception is apparently real. On the one hand, I was ready to say, anybody doing signs and wonders or claiming to be Christ, absolutely forget it. Big red flag. Yeah. On the other hand, your interpretation of the wisdom that's required right. does seem to argue or suggest that we're going to have to be open right. to people claiming supernatural powers. Powers, I mean, a, a prophet, if you will. Right. A true believing prophet saying God has given me this wisdom. So I guess, could you comment on that? Right, well... First of all, I just think that uh, it says in First uh, John, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know the truth. You don't need anyone to teach you. And so don't, don't worry about... I mean, he will get you what you need in order to survive. 
Nobody's going to slip through his sovereignty and end up in hell because we accidentally received the mark of the beast. That cannot happen. But I do think there's indications that he's going to use teachers at that time who will say this is exactly what the Lord had said would happen. And, and all of Christ's sheep will recognize those gifted people as they have done for 20 plus centuries, that the true teachers get up and teach the word of God. And the sheep hear that and they say, that's the truth. That's what the scripture says. We were warned ahead of time. And then, just to finish what I was saying a moment ago about fear and concern, don't worry about it. God will give you what to say. He will give you the courage you need and you will die to the glory of God as brothers and sisters have done for generations. As it says in Romans 8, 36, uh, for your sake we are being killed all day long. It's not just theoretical for some of our brothers and sisters, especially in the Muslim world or in other places. They literally are being killed. And God gives them dying grace. But I don't believe that will happen to everyone. As I said, there will be some believers still standing, still alive when Christ returns. And so he's going to give them protection. But uh, none of us are going to slip through and accidentally go to hell. Concerning signs and wonders, I haven't talked about the two, um, the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And so they're able to do signs and wonders too. So it's not automatic but I liked what you said, Susan. It's not just that they do signs and wonders, that they claim to be the Christ. That's a whole different matter. Jesus said, don't believe them, because when I come back, you'll know it. <laughs> Nobody, you don't need any faith. Nobody's going to, I mean, it's going to happen. And as lightning that comes from one side, visible to the other, everybody will know it. So if somebody comes claiming, I am he, do not believe it. And that's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to claim to be God. In God's temple. That's what he's going to do. All right, so let's summarize what we've learned about the Antichrist uh, from Daniel, Matthew, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. These are the themes, and there may be others besides, but this is what I get. He comes to power by deception and trickery. His mouth is filled with blasphemy. He has soaring arrogance. He's able to astonish the world with miracles. He claims deity and is worshipped by unbelievers. He has dominating power over all the inhabitants of the earth. He rules in the end by bloodshed and terror. He, uh, there's a concentrated persecution of the saints. He zeroes in on them and successfully kills many of them. Not all, but many. He desecrates the temple of God. Get to that in a moment. He is destroyed by Christ's glorious second coming. So his final destruction, Daniel 7:26. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Uh, Daniel 8:25. He will cause deceit to prosper and will consider himself superior. Isn't that a great verse? I just think I'm great, you know. He will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and will take a stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Daniel 9.27, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Daniel 11.45, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. And then Revelation 19 uh, after the second coming of Christ, it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So that's the end of it. That's the end of the Antichrist. All right, and so that's my 15-minute teaching on the Antichrist, all right? Yes, it was hopeless from the beginning. Let's talk about the temple of God. 
All right, I've already alluded to the fact that it says the Antichrist will set himself up in God's temple. Now remember, there's a key idea here again and again, as it was, so it will be. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And therefore, there's a repeated theme in history. That is that God chooses out a location, a place among his chosen people, and he establishes a place there for worship. And because of the sin of his people, the Jews, he gives that place of worship over to be trampled or in some sense desecrated by the Gentiles. It happens again and again. This is what God does. All right, God uses these types to teach the future. And so that's the case of this abomination uh, of desolation. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's the quote uh, Jesus saying, uh, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, I don't think that's the best translation of the NIV, let's just go with abomination of desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then the, those who are in Judea flee uh, to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So here's this abomination of desolation. And uh, I think it's interesting what Jesus says. Let the reader understand. Again, there's that call for wisdom as we got in Revelation with the 666 and Daniel's quest for wisdom. He's trying to understand. And so Jesus here says, it's almost like a, it's, it's a, a secret code phrase. You're going to need some special wisdom, all right? Let the reader of Daniel, I think is what he's referring to, let the reader of Daniel understand. So watch out and you will know. So what is he referring to? Well, this abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. I believe the desecration and or destruction of the temple is a play that's been unfolded in many acts and scenes throughout history. Okay? The establishment of a single place for worship in earth is one of the most significant moments in redemptive history. God gave to Moses a pattern for the tabernacle based on a vision he gave Moses of heaven itself. Moses constructed the tabernacle according to that pattern that he had seen. Later, Solomon constructed a temple from the pattern shown to David. All right? Both of these things were just a type of our future perfect fellowship with God in heaven. We will have face-to-face -face fellowship with God. They were a picture of God and humanity, uh, his people, dwelling together. Uh, the, uh, you've heard of the expression, Shekinah glory of God. Um, the Mishkan is the place, the prefix, the M prefix there means place of dwelling or dwelling place. That's what it means. The, it's the dwelling glory. You know how the glory of God would come down and fill the tabernacle. You know, whenever Moses would go into the tent of meeting, there was this, this pillar of, of fire and, and, the, the, and his face would shine with glory when he would spend time. And then remember when Solomon finished dedicating the temple, the same thing happened again. A, cl a glory cloud came and filled it. It's the dwelling glory. So that's what it is. It's a picture of the dwelling of God with man uh, in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, since they were part, however, of the Old Covenant, they were subject to amazing and deeply disturbing reversals, uh, very disturbing to the Jews. The essence of the Old Covenant, of course, was if you do these things, you will live. Uh, the Jews didn't do these things. They kept breaking the covenant. They kept disobeying. And so what would God do? Again and again, God gave them over to their enemies, who were always Gentiles. So he'd give them over to their enemies... And as a result, the enemies would trample. Uh, he did it, I'm just going to pick up the pace here. He did it in Shiloh. After they had crossed the Jordan River and established themselves in the Promised Land, the first place 
where the tabernacle was set up in the promised land, when the Jews are in the promised land, the book of Joshua, was Shiloh. We see it continuing on into um, the book of Judges, etc. Then in 1 Samuel, you remember the story, how uh, God was very displeased with Eli's sons and wanted to take the priesthood away from them. He was displeased with Israel as a whole. Israel... Uh, defied God, they were sinful against God, and God uh, defeated them before the Philistines. So he said, well, I have an idea. Somebody said, I have an idea. I think it was Eli's sons that suggested it. I don't know for sure, but uh, let's bring the ark. Let's go get the ark. Remember that? Good idea. And uh, so in comes the ark, and the Jews are just whooping and hollering, and the Philistines are like, oh my goodness, now we're going to lose for sure. This, these are the gods that defeated the Egyptians, and all that. We're in trouble now. Well, be men and do the best you can, and let's do, you know, maybe if we die, we die. That was the Philistines, right? Well, well, they didn't die. They actually conquered that day and captured the ark. I think that's a picture of the abomination of desolation. These are Gentile people grabbing hold of the ark. Remember what happened to Uzzah when he grabbed hold of the ark? You know, And of course, Eli, fat, old, hears that the ark had been captured, falls over backwards and breaks his neck. He was worried for the ark. He needn't have been. The ark can take care of itself, so to speak, or God can take care of it. There's nothing they could do to that ark that God didn't will. You remember the whole story. It gets put in the temple of Dagon and Dagon falls on its face before the ark, that whole thing, until finally they can't wait to get rid of the uh, ark of the covenant, etc. But that's the first picture. Well, later, much later in Israel's history, After much sin, God sent them a prophet to say it's over. Speaking of Judah now, southern kingdom, northern kingdom had already been been exiled because of their wickedness. And so God sent Jeremiah to say, it's finished. And I will not hear any prayer for the people. And he said, do not say to me, Jeremiah 7, do not say to me, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why are they saying that? Well, God will never let his temple be trampled by the Gentiles, will he? That'll never happen, will it? Well, God wouldn't do that. You know what Jeremiah said? Go to Shiloh and look and see what happened there. See what I did there. What does he mean, go to Shiloh? He's saying, remember what happened in the days of Eli, what I did with the ark? I'm going to do it again. Only this time it's going to be the Babylonians. They're going to burn it down. They're going to take Solomon's temple and burn it to the ground. That's another picture, in my opinion, the abomination of desolation. It's the burning of the temple and the destruction by um, Gentile people. Desecration of it. All right. Well, I think the same thing happens uh, at the end of time. One last time it happens, and it happens with the temple of Herod, the temple that was uh, around during Jesus' day. Remember that? Jesus goes and he gives his uh, uh, sevenfold woe to the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he, seven times he says, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a terrifying thing, especially since they are the leaders of Israel. They represent Israel. You know, he says that they sit in Moses' seat, so you must do everything they say. So they are rulers, they're leaders, and he gives a sevenfold woe on them. And then he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as her hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. And then he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That's a very important word, isn't it? For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What then is the desolation? Think about it. Your house has left you desolate for you're not going to see me again until such and such. So the desolation is Jesus leaving. You understand? The desolation is their unbelief in Christ. Desolation means emptiness, like a desert. It's empty. Like when the glory of God went out from the temple in the days of Ezekiel. 
It's, an, it's empty. The, the glory is gone. Like they said, Ichabod. The glory is gone. And Jesus was the glory of Israel. And he leaves the temple. And he's going out of the temple. You remember that? And the disciples come and say, what magnificent buildings. And they're so impressed with the temple. And he said, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. What is he talking about there? The destruction of the temple. It's yet another abomination of desolation. It's the, it's the desecration of the temple by Gentiles. It happened in 70 A.D. And so the Romans came and destroyed it. And so Jesus gives a prediction. He said, now when you see the armies around Jerusalem and when you see the temple getting desecrated, run for your lives. Run for your lives. When did that happen? Well, it happened in 70 A.D. But as it was, so it will be. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again one more time. Now, not everyone believes this. Not every uh, evangelical believes this. Some think that the temple's, the temple's finished. There's no prophecy of a rebuilding of the temple. All right? But I disagree. Um, in my opinion, I don't see any other way to make sense of all of these verses speaking of the Antichrist connected with the temple and with sacrifices and putting an end to sacrifices in the middle of the seven years and all of that. There's got to be a temple, friends. But that leads me to a problem. What problem does that lead me to? The book of Hebrews, okay? What is the problem in the book of Hebrews? It's the fact that God is finished forever with animal sacrifice. Finished forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he will never again accept the blood of a bull or a goat again after Jesus died? Please say you believe that. Please nod your head. Yes, I believe that. I know it's late. Yes, I believe that God will never again accept animal sacrifice. Well, then what is the temple for? What is it for? Animal sacrifice. Well, why in the world would God want a temple to be built? I didn't say God wanted it to be, be built. I said it would be built. There's a difference, don't you see? Now, what is the desolation of Israel? What is it? They're not seeing Jesus. They don't love him. They don't believe in him. Wouldn't it make sense for them to rebuild the temple in defiance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross? They don't believe. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, right? Why? Why was it torn? Because God said it's finished. Through Jesus, it's finished. We don't need that anymore. The Jews sewed it up. All right, well, you didn't get that? Well, I'll make it even clearer next time. In 70 AD, he destroys it entirely. And he predicts that he's going to do it, not just through Jesus, but in the book of Hebrews. He says in Hebrews 8.13, I don't even know where I am in my outline. Turn the page. Page 12, okay? By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. What does that mean, obsolete? It's finished. It's done. We don't need it anymore. The old covenant is obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon, what? Disappear. Is that not a prediction of the destruction of the temple? He's going to just remove it. In case you didn't get it the first time, which they didn't, I'll just remove it. And you cannot offer animal sacrifices anymore. Do the Jews want to offer animal sacrifices? Some of them don't care. They're godless. Some of them, atheistic, especially after the, you know, Auschwitz and all that. They just don't believe in any God at all. But they're still biologically descendants of Abraham. But there are some Jews that would love to rebuild the temple. They want to be obedient to the law of Moses. They don't believe that Jesus ended that. They're still under orders. And they just have been frustrated by the Gentiles. So you know what I think? I think the abomination of desolation at one level is the temple itself. That it's even getting built in defiance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But in some way... Though, that temple that the Jews rebuild will represent God to them. The true God, the only God. They'll be doing it to try to honor God. So if you're the Antichrist, now let me rephrase. The Antichrist, um, 
I love it. I was listening to an interview with Neil Armstrong. When you walk on the moon, boy, after that, nothing's... I'm not going to walk on the moon. Don't use that you kind of language, all right? Because I'm never going to walk on the moon. When I walked on the moon, after that, it was hard for me to be excited about anything else. That's, all right, that's fine. So I'm not going to say, when you're the Antichrist, etc., because you're not. Are you? No, okay. All right, you're not. All right. All right, so you are not the Antichrist, but at any rate, the Antichrist, if he wants to defy God, wouldn't the temple be of interest to him? And so we can almost put the temple of God in quotations in my interpretation. It's not really God's temple. God's true temple is where? What's the true tabernacle? It's in heaven. The earthly tabernacle and temple were just pictures, copies, shadows of it, and they're not needed anymore. So it's God's temple, so to speak. It's not the real one. But the Antichrist can still use it to blaspheme God. And it matters to God what the Antichrist intends, as you learned in Isaiah 10, right? What does he intend by doing it? What's in his mind by sitting there and proclaiming himself to be God? Utter blasphemy. And God accepts it as so. And he'll judge him for it. You see what I'm saying? That's the best sense I can make of the rebuilding of the temple. So he's going to, uh, the temple would be rebuilt. Some link it to a covenant or some kind of a contract made with the Jews permitting this rebuilding. And halfway through, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. He's going to shut it down and he'll set himself up as the true God. And at that point, things get very, very difficult for the Jews. Very difficult indeed. So that's the uh, sense that I make of the abomination of desolation, that he will be the Antichrist, the ultimate Gentile ruler, will sit in God's temple and destroy it and desecrate it in some uh, violent and nasty way and uh, claim it himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. And when that happens one last time, and I say it that way because it's happened again and again and again, when it happens one last time, run for your lives. That's what he's saying. Run for your lives. Uh, because this is the this is when things really really get hard. What about the future of the Jews? The future of the Jews. Well, um, the key verse. I'll just give you the key verse here. Romans eleven twenty five through twenty seven. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until a full number of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn. Look at that word. Godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when they t- take away their sins. Jesus didn't say, your house has left you desolate forever. He says, your house is left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's hopeful, isn't it? Even though judgment is coming on the Jews, still it's hopeful that there will come a time when they will say, blessed is he. Well, it's not just hopeful. Paul says it straight out. He tells them a mystery. Romans 11, 25 through 27 says, the time will come when God will take godlessness, atheism, away from the Jews. How's he going to do that? Does God have the power to take atheism away from a heart? Yes, he does like that. He can take out the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh. That's the whole point of Romans 9 through 11 and the sovereignty of God over salvation. He can do that anytime he wants. Why hasn't he done it yet? Well, the full number of Gentiles hasn't come in. And so Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Why only hardening in part? Because some Jews do believe in Jesus, like Paul and others, Peter. There are a lot of Jews that believe in Jesus, just not most of them. That's a remnant, a small number of remnant, chosen by grace. And they're saved by grace and protected by grace. But then there's that whole nation. All right. And so all Israel be saved. And so means in this way, in this manner, through this, all Israel is going to be saved by God taking their godlessness away. 
by God giving them a heart to repent and believe in Jesus. And none of them are going to be saved apart from believing in Jesus. Does that mean every single solitary Jew that's ever been born will be in heaven? Is that what all Israel will be saved means? Absolutely not. Because he begins the whole section in Romans 9 saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to the Israelites for them is that they may be saved. That's chapter 10 and verse in chapter 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, the Jews. So why is he weeping with unceasing anguish? Because they're dying and going to hell. That's why. So do not think that just because somebody is physically descended from Abraham that they don't need to repent and believe in Jesus. That's not what all Israel be saved means. What it means is they're going to be saved the way all of us get saved. And how do we get saved? We are justified by faith in Christ. And so God is going to work some amazing, astonishing revival among the Jews and turn their hearts to Christ at the end. I think the Antichrist persecution may have something to do with it. The suffering that's going on will have something to do with it. But look at this, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Wow. God's going to pour out on the Jews a spirit of supplication and grace. They're going to pray. They're going to receive grace. And they're going to look on the one who was pierced. Just as John quotes in John 19, you look it up, at the crucifixion, after the Roman had pierced him with the sword and brought out a flow of blood and water, it says, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. He's quoting Zechariah. So Jesus was pierced. But notice that it says, it does not say, as another scripture, and another scripture is fulfilled, saying. He uses the word fulfilled frequently in John 19, but he doesn't say it's fulfilled. Because the piercing has happened. It had to happen then. But what hasn't happened? The looking hasn't happened yet. And the looking will happen at the end, when God takes away that spirit of unbelief and wickedness and rebellion, and they will finally look to Jesus, and they will weep, and they'll mourn for all of the the years of rebellion. But it'll be happy weeping, I think, because they have at last come to faith in Christ. And then the desolation will be gone. Israel won't be desolate anymore. So that's the future of the Jews. I think there's a picture of it in Revelation when you get a a sealed number of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that are listed there. I don't want to get into the mysteries of what tribes are listed, Joseph and Manasseh and all that. I mean, it's just, the book of Revelation is infinitely complicated and deep. So I don't really know. But there's this indication of a bunch of Jews, you know, a number of Jews that are sealed from every tribe. And then right after that, you get this picture of a great multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation. I do not believe that those Jews lead those folks to faith in Christ. I don't think so. Because it says they've experienced a hardening part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. I just think that they're both there at the, at the throne worshiping Jesus. So you get a bunch of Jews and you get a huge multitude from all over the world and they're all worshiping Jesus. So the future is uh, mass ingathering of Jews. All right, one final thing will be done, and that is the wrath of God in Revelation. No, we're not. We'll do this next time. There's no way I can hurry through that. I mean, how can I hurry through the prog- uh, progressive parallelism 7-7? Seven, seven. You want to hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all that? So we'll do that next time. All right, the, the ravaging of the earth, the devastation of the earth. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study tonight about the Antichrist and his coming to the earth. We thank you that just as Paul warned and taught the Thessalonians, so we've had the chance tonight to be warned and taught by you and by your word and your spirit. Father, help us to take these things seriously, 
to teach them to our children, to prepare them if, if the Antichrist might come in their lifetime or that they would teach their children if it might come in the lifetime of our grandchildren. Lord, help us to take these things very seriously so that we would be well aware of what the Antichrist will come to do, that we would not in any way be deceived. Father, we thank you for your great sovereign power. We thank you that all of these horrific events that are coming are all under your mighty hand and that you will give your church sustaining grace to survive. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.